On today's episode, The Science of Trigger Points with Paul Ingram. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. the name rings a bell uh that's because paul ingram was on quite recently he was on in april uh episode 229 and the title was when to get medical scans if you haven't listened to that episode paul is the creator of painscience.com tons of relevant information to do with being a runner um but just understanding pain science i think all runners can best like that's why I've dedicated so many episodes to it because I think it's so relevant to injured runners um, or if you're getting niggles or you know any future injury I think people would be really it's really key for people to know about pain science but tons of other things on there about um, surgeries or particular I think he said he was delving into stress fractures last time we had him on but other manual therapies tons of stuff on that website so go check it out um, Paul Ingram after our last conversation I quickly <laughs> asked if I could have him on again to talk about trigger point release right up his alley and he was more than happy to do it so we jumped on another call and talked about the science behind trigger points, but also around, you know, myofascial release and just, I guess, massage things in general. He was, he, Paul Ingram is, or was a massage therapist, um, not currently practicing, but went through his three year studies of massage therapy. And since started questioning a lot of the narratives, questioning a lot of the science, um, very closely related to Alice Sanvito, who we've had on the podcast before to talk about the benefits of massage and the science behind massage. And after our recording, he actually said that um, he studied with Alice Sanvito like at the same time. So um, strange co coincidence there, but um, the conversation today, really, really engaging. A lot of stuff There's can get a little bit like science heavy. Um, a lot of it's kind of theoretical. Hopefully you you hold on. It's it's a really nice interview throughout. A lot of takeaways and finish off with a really nice bow on top. So, I hope you enjoy. Let's take it away. Paul, welcome once again to the podcast. Thanks for joining me for round two. Thank you. Glad to be here again. And it's a particular topic that I'm excited about because I have um, I've talked to Alice Sanvito on the podcast before about massage and trigger points and um, her particular views and sort of right. bringing a lot of those particular concepts to, to the forefront of people's minds. But um, really excited to talk to you about it. You're very well-versed based on the, the pain science podcast, uh, the pain science website and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I do want to start off because you were a massage therapist originally. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't mind you just casting back to that time in your life and, um, you know, particularly around what was taught uh and what, when abouts was it? Like, um, how long ago were, yeah. you, were you studying those things? Uh, it's getting to be sh a shockingly long time ago now. <laughs> I started uh, studying massage therapy in 1997. Yes. Okay. In the previous <laughs> century. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> I, and it was a three-year program. So 97, to, I graduated in 2000 and started work in Vancouver. And I worked as a massage therapist in Vancouver for 10 years until 2010. And uh, so that was my <laughs> clinical career. I go way back. And, uh, and I learned about trigger points during school 
from a mentor, from one of the instructors at the college. And it wasn't really being taught in the classes. We actually didn't really learn about trigger points or trigger point therapy in school, despite the fact that we had a long three-year program, unusually long for massage therapy. Uh, trigger points certainly came up. It was covered, but not in any detail. And uh, and yet I had this uh, I had this mentor. I went to see her as a patient uh, and learned about trigger points from her. And she started, I think, enjoy teaching me about them. And so I got this, I got this crash course, not even, not crash, I got a detailed course one-on-one -on -one with this instructor in the ideas of you know, trigger point therapy really in its heyday. You know, it was really hot back then, um, still unknown to lots of people, but getting big, getting popular. And, and I got it from her and she was very knowledgeable about the topic. So that's since... You know, I first learned about trigger points in 1997. Wow. And I guess back then, when you were going through that, that three-year course, what sort of techniques and um, I guess the, the mechanisms behind those techniques were taught? Um, I, I don't know that I learned anything about how trigger point therapy was supposed to be working in my courses. I don't recall if it was taught. If it was taught, it was so overshadowed by what I was learning one on one with that uh, with that mentor that that's all I remember. Uh, but certainly she explained it to me. You know, that's you know that's where I began was with you know, I essentially just took her word for it. What she taught me was the uh, classic trigger point uh, dogma, still dominant to this day. Um, although questioned by a lot more people today. Uh, and I just stood, you know, I, I just swallowed it whole and ran with it for many, many years. If people aren't familiar with that dogma kind of teachings about trigger point, do you mind explaining mm. what she said? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, uh, it, there, there's a really easy short version and that the, this is the idea that muscles get uh, sore spots that are basically tiny little cramps. That's the plain English version of the hypothesis. The uh, slightly more complicated version is the energy crisis hypothesis. Uh, the, uh, the theory here is that um, the muscle is essentially choking off its own blood supply and getting caught in a metabolic vicious cycle, getting irritated by the lack of oxygen um, producing more waste products, which irritate it further, which make it clench more, goes around and around and gets worse and worse and causes a very uh, irritable little patch of tissue. Uh, that is the conventional wisdom. That was a hypothesis put forward by the people who originally, you know, created the idea of trigger points. Uh, and that is still the explanation accepted by most massage therapists and other practitioners of trigger point therapy today. Um, I think that if you, you know, if you went to see a massage therapist today and they did trigger point therapy on you, there'd be about a 90% chance, 80 to 90% that that is the explanation they would give you if they gave you one. Hmm. Outside of trigger point release, what other techniques are being taught? Like I know, Alice was talking about, you know, massage is designed to increase blood flow, uh, remove lactic acid, like all of those particular, mm -hmm. I don't know, um, ideas behind massage was, were you being taught very similar, um, merits? Yeah. I think that the massage therapy education in that, in that era and still probably quite a lot today, um, is dominated by a lot of really, you know, classic myths about how massage therapy does what it does. Um, fascial release has been ascendant for the last 20 years. I didn't see much of that in school, but it was coming. Um, so that's maybe one thing that's changed quite a bit. Um, so these days you'd often, you would, you'll often hear the idea that massage is working by releasing fascial restrictions that's a, a very popular notion today. And I'm sure it was being tossed around in the late 90s when I was in school. But 
<laughs> you're, you're asking me to dig deep into the memory banks here. I don't entirely <laughs> well, doing remember. a very good job of doing it. I don't know exactly what we were taught those low, those 25 yeah. years ago. Um, <laughs> but I know it was, you know, basically, you know, the greatest hits of massage mythology. Things like increasing mm-hmm. circulation and uh, releasing tight muscles and relieving trigger points and detoxifying and so on and so forth. Lots of lots of old chestnuts of, you know, what massage is supposedly good for. Yep. I graduated 10 years ago and I struggled to remember what was happening then. So you're doing <laughs> a fantastic job. <laughs> well, plus my head is so I remember... cluttered with everything that I've thought about and written about ever since. So it's, uh, yeah, it is yeah, getting... It's, very it, true. I'm sure I would actually be shocked if I could go back and you know see what i was being taught in 1998 i'd probably be horrified and amazed (laughs) at the things that i've forgotten Mm. well i know when i was studying physio that a lot of the content had to cover us working in hospitals us working in private practice all these different conditions and a lot of it was not reserved for massage techniques. I know we had one workshop on massage techniques and it took maybe an hour, an hour and a half, and that's all we got. And that was extremely brief, extremely very, very similar to what you're talking about um, in terms of the benefits and the the mechanisms behind massage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, not a lot, but I'm curious to hear as you entered the field, as you entered the profession and started working, um, how long did it take you to start questioning those theories? Because I kind of know the the end result of, you know, where your career took off towards. Um, at what yeah. stage did you start maybe questioning those particular methods and um, start thinking about, yeah, I guess going against the grain? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, you could divide it into two. In a sense, it it took forever and it really wasn't even until I was actually done my clinical career that I really first started to seriously question uh, some things, particularly trigger point therapy, which had been, you know, a, a bedrock of, of my clinical practice. Um, so that's one perspective is that it just took a, took a really long time. And, uh, and, and really, you know, that shift is actually pretty recent. Um, the other way of looking at it is that I was skeptical and suspicious from day one. And part of the reason that I took to trigger point therapy very early was not just that I was learning it from a mentor, but because it seemed, you know, it seemed like an answer to the question, where's the beef? Um, I wasn't that impressed with what I was learning in school. I didn't see a lot of clarity about what massage was supposed to be achieving physiologically. Um, I think I probably sensed very early on that things like increasing circulation were pretty hand wavy, <laughs> didn't have a lot of substance to them. So from the earliest days, I remember, you know, wanting more, wanting to understand better and being really impressed by the complexity and subtlety of physiology and, and just being really humble. So even though I took to trigger point therapy early and made it the basis of my practice, and it seemed like a pretty you know, decent answer to the question, what are we doing here really anyway? Um, I also didn't take it that seriously. And I was always very cautious with my confidence and not being overconfident about what I was doing. So I was in a good position from the beginning to eventually start asking much harder questions about what what is that trigger point therapy stuff really? What, what's going on there? And uh, mm. and then it started to happen in a rush approximately 10 years ago. A couple of years after I got out of clinical practice, I started noticing mostly on social media, uh, a lot of people were starting to question the conventional wisdom and the dogma about trigger point therapy. And the full transition, you know, it took at least three years for me to, fully get on board and go, okay, I, I need to, I need to update my beliefs here. It's time, it's time to have a good, hard look at myself and what I believe and why I believe it. And a lot changed. Mm. A lot of things changed. Yeah. And I, a very similar 
pattern happened with Alice, uh, Alice Sanvito talking about yeah. her insights was once she started like mingling with really science minded practitioners who started questioning those mm-hmm. beliefs and without any real, like that sort of got her brain, like sort of self-evaluating being like, Hey, what evidence am I holding on to? Like, why do I hold true these sort of beliefs? And that sort of got her started on that journey. Yeah. And I remember like we learn massage techniques, like physiotherapy. A lot of it is release work, massage, trigger point therapy, dry needling, yeah. um, mobilizations. And I know spine mobilizations is a big part of our practice. And I remember just maybe one or two years out of graduating, like just having drinks with my physio mates. One of them said like, what does mobilizations actually do? Like, you know, you're poking into a joint and you're doing that at a rhythmic sort of motion. And what's, what's actually it shouldn't really be doing anything because you're not really doing much. Um, but people feel a little bit better, which is kind of my years of practicing as a therapist. You kind of get this confirmation bias because you do this treatment under a like theoretical way. Um, you sort of have this theory of why it should work and then you do the therapy and then they feel a lot better. The patient itself, they have less pain. They, 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 they're moving better. They're feeling better. And it kind of just confirms your hypothesis. And did you see a bit of that? Like as you were treating these patients and kind of going on this theoretical hypothesis that trigger points existed and then you do your therapy and people would have resounding successes. Wouldn't that, um, did that help confirm your bias initially or um, what were your your ideas around that? We we tell a lot of stories to ourselves and and to our patients in this field. the same kind of stuff happens again and again, but we tell different stories about it at different times. Um, and there's kind of this interesting phenomenon that it, it doesn't it doesn't really matter what stories we tell about what we're doing and what it's supposedly what effect it's supposedly having on the body. The results are kind of the same. Happy patients <laughs> mm. who feel somewhat better yeah. for a bit, and. Uh, lasting, profound and lasting relief is relatively rare. Uh, But lots of people feel somewhat better for a while. And there's a lot of customer satisfaction, uh, which is different from feeling better. And they tend to overlap the Venn diagram of, you know, actually feeling better and being a satisfied customer. It's a lot of overlap there. It's hard to separate them. Uh, so that's an, you know, that's an interesting phenomenon. And yeah, I saw, I mean, I had a ton of clinical experiences that uh, superficially they, they seem to confirm what I believed. Uh, what I think is going on here must be right because look at these results. Um, the most important thing that so many practitioners miss is what are the what are the patients saying? What are the ones who don't come back, what are they saying? And particularly as the publisher of painscience.com, I have access to a lot of dissatisfied customers. I have heard from an awful lot of people over the years who weren't so happy and um, have pretty strong complaints about their experiences trying to recover from their running injuries with the help of a physiotherapist or a massage therapist. People don't typically tell their therapist when they're not happy, but they tell me I get a lot of this in Mm -hmm. my inbox. And so a lot of my earliest skepticism was seeing that disconnect. And, and then of course, also realizing I probably have patients like this too, who, you know, the ones who didn't come back, the story they tell, uh, would not confirm what I believe. That was one of the early chinks in the armor of, you know, my confidence. And I was already pretty deliberately humble and trying really hard not to drink my own Kool-Aid. So it wasn't too hard to start thinking, hmm, maybe I'm not doing what I think I'm doing. (laughs) Maybe this isn't what Mm -hmm. I think it is. But yeah, there's a, I mean, I had just a buttload of, clinical experiences that seemed like 
perfect examples of miracle cures with the power of trigger point therapy. I also had a number of personal experiences that felt a lot like that. Um, and it wasn't, you know, I think it was, it was probably about 2014. So four years after clinical practice, I wrote an article about my doubts. And the way that I introduced it was by saying, I've, I got a lot of great anecdotes about trigger point therapy, but I no longer trust them. I no longer trust what I thought they meant uh, because there are just so many ways that we can misunderstand our own experiences in therapy and our own as patients and practitioners either way. Mm. Yeah. I quickly learned that exactly what you say, the ones that just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Don't come back. They're the ones that, you know, you need to be, you, you kind of want to know their story. You kind of want to know their particular yeah. outcome and what they're thinking, but, you know, they don't come back. So you, it's very hard to, to contact them again. But yeah. I also, the same way that you said, the ones that do come back that aren't that satisfied, they still want to be polite and they kind of say, yeah, I'm oh, yeah. kind of getting better. And I quickly learned that and I like had to really sit them down and say, you let me know if you're not getting better because we need to know if what we're doing is working. So I want a really honest opinion. And then their answer would dramatically change and say, you know what, I'm not really feeling much better. And, you know, it's it. people just want to be, they don't want to stir up a fuss. They kind of just want to be polite and nice and agreeable yeah. and that sort there's, of stuff. There's so a term I'm glad for that you pointed that. There's actually a word for that. I can't remember it right now, unfortunately. That'd be, good, <laughs> okay. be better material if I could remember it. But there's actually a word for, for the <laughs> way that people want to please healthcare practitioners and say mm. what they, you know, what they want to be true and what they hope will, you know, please the authority figure. Um, and I, I've done exactly the same thing as you have, you know, try to encourage people to be honest. And it's, I always found it, um, amusing, kind of heartwarming, um, how you'd, there'd often be a little bit of resistance at first, you know, like they wouldn't quite be honest at first and you'd encourage them again. And then it would come out. Mm, yeah. <laughs> There'd be this sudden flood of, well, actually, now that you, yeah. now that you really encourage me to be honest, yeah, I'm kind of still limping a lot. <laughs> I still okay. can't run yeah. more than three K. Uh, <laughs> and it was always struck me as kind of um, interesting, how strongly mm. you had to encourage people to be honest about it before they actually would. Uh, b before you ask another question, can I jump in here? I want to say just a basic thing about trigger points that uh, we should have gotten in earlier, but better late than never, which is just that we're dealing with the phenomenon of sore spots here. Trigger points are, that's just the name or the label for the common phenomenon of sore spots, aching sore spots, which is totally a thing regardless of the explanation for it. So when people talk about trigger points and trigger point therapy, um, it's, it's, you know, that topic is fraught with the great weight of people's ideas about what is that? What's going on? How do you explain those sore spots? But literally nobody, not even the most skeptical of skeptics questions that there's a phenomenon of sore spots. We get sore spots. And so just wanted to get that in there. Should have said it earlier. And I'm glad you said it. Cause that was going to be my next follow-up question. I was going to say like around, especially <laughs> I, should have, say, I should have waited. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad you checked. Um, because if someone was to say, okay, you have tight fascia here, let me do some release work. Um, yeah. this is what we call myofascial release. It's going to free up your shoulder. Um, what would you say? Why, what makes you question that that, that benefit exists? Um, is it just the fact that no one can physically create that, that breakup of tissue or is it too short lived? Um, what's your, what's your pushback against that theory? Against fa tight fascia as an explanation for a sore shoulder? 
if someone said, no matter where in the body, like, okay, if the therapist said, oh, you have this really tight fascia, let's do some release work. And you say, mm-hmm. well, that's only theoretical in terms of its benefits. Um, why are you saying that it, it doesn't work or it's, it, that theory doesn't exist? Sure. And uh, let me distinguish between fascial uh, therapy and uh, trigger point therapy. There's some confusing overlap there. Uh, having a lot of sore spots uh, that are presumed to be trigger points is called myofascial pain syndrome. That's the sort of official label for that. Um, so that's got fascia in the term, but this is actually quite different from the concept of fascial therapy. Fascial therapy is much more all about the fascia, whereas trigger point therapy is much more all about the muscle and what it's supposedly doing. Although many, many people now understand that we're not entirely sure what causes those sore spots and whether or not it's really muscle. And so fascial therapy, that's manual therapy massage that is focused on trying to stretch and pull on the sheets of connective tissue that wrap everything in our bodies. that's basically our gristle. It is literally the same stuff as gristle in steak. Uh, it's connective tissue. So the the idea that this would be helpful to pull on your gristle uh, comes almost entirely from one source uh, back in the last century when I was learning this stuff. And the, the main idea, the big idea was that fascia can get distorted. Um, Fascial distortions was what it was originally called. And uh, the fascial distortion model became not the only, but the main rationale for tugging on fascia. And particularly in the early days of fascial therapy, it was very fashionable to (laughs) pull really hard on the connective tissue to pull extremely hard on it and and you'd have to to do anything to it because it's incredibly tough stuff so the basic pushback against this right fascia fascial therapy is super trendy and has been now it's probably transcending trend now because it's it's been popular for probably at least you know I think we could go with quarter century now. Um, it, it's the, the main reason to push back against it is that the, the premise has never been validated. We have absolutely no evidence that fascia gets distorted. And even if it did, it's extremely unlikely that we can do anything about it. Um, the, basically, it's an imaginary pathology. The idea that something is wrong with your fascia that needs to be worked out um, by someone's hands is flawed at basically every level, despite the fact that, you know, a ton of fascial science has been done. It is largely spurious and specious and has nothing to do with clinical reality. And almost all of my work on this topic has focused on the fact that there's lots of interesting physiology, but it's all basic physiology, basic science that does not have any clear clinical application. So you've got an, you know, a hypothetical, I would say, imaginary problem with the fascia um, and hypothetical, I would say, imaginary ability to affect the imaginary problem. Uh, so that's, <laughs> I just did the whole fascia speech there. I just, <laughs> I just went for it. That's the fascia yeah. speech, basically. Um, yep. But this is quite different. There's, I mean, there's overlap with the trigger point therapy thing, but it is different in important ways. How about Gratston techniques and therapy? Have you done much research into that? Because I never heard that term, Gratston mm. technique, until... Graston podcast Graston. Yeah. Until mm-hmm. the, the, the technique itself got, um, 
Oh, well, until, first of all, the podcast became quite popular and I started getting a fair few US and North American listeners. And then they would reach out to me and be like, what do you think of this? Um, like I've had this done and then I'd start seeing US clients and they'd say, oh yeah, in the past I had this, 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 and the Graston stuff always came up. Um, and from what I can tell, it seems to just be a soft tissue release technique. Um, um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on if you've looked at it in the past, if you've, um, oh, yeah. you know, done some research and that sort of stuff. What are your thoughts? Sure. Yeah. Um, the, the technique you've named is that's a branded modality. An American chiropractor started that. Uh, the generic concept is um, scraping tool massage or tool-assisted tool massage. And uh, for those of you who are not initiated, um, the, the tools are impressive. They look wicked. They look mean. And they kind of are. It's like a surgeon kit. Yeah, there's very exp very expensive versions of these tools are, are sold. They can be quite beautiful as, you know, as physical artifacts, very impressive looking, you know, chrome um, tools that look like they could take your head off. And they just about do. Um, some practitioners <laughs> of tool-assisted massage are very brutal. Um, and there's, you know, plenty of superficial tissue damage after some of these treatments. Other practitioners would argue against doing it that intensely. Um, there's not actually a lot of connection with fascial therapy. Um, plenty of tool-assisted massage has been rationalized using fascia. Um, but originally, it was pretty much a pure provocation therapy. And provocation therapies are, these are what I call, this is kind of a loose group of therapies that all have one principle in common, which is you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. You've got to piss tissue off to provoke it into a more vigorous healing response. And, uh, and there are certain precedents for this in biology, but basically it's kind of a wild guess that abusing tissue is somehow going to result in making it heal better. Um, and that, that was the original idea. And if you examine a lot of the early claims, it's all, it's all just, you know, really typical pseudoscientific stuff, just, just physiological BS, just people, you know, therapists guessing about, you know, how they think, their technique might work. And, uh, and it's all very muddled and variable over the years. And there's, there's no coherent or consistent story about how that is supposed to help people. Um, and yet it remains extremely popular, probably mostly because patients love stuff that's intense and makes a big splash uh, and makes it seem more worthwhile it's you know, basically the you know the principle that it's no pain no gain and mm. uh, and boy you get plenty of pain <laughs> from <tool> assisted <laughs> massage and you get and you get plenty of pain from really intense fascial therapy and you get plenty of pain from really digging into your trigger points uh, and you'll notice as you study this stuff this is a common theme that again and again, it's really intense stuff that gets the attention. Um, and then sort of paradoxically, there's this almost reactionary class of therapies that go to the other extreme. And they're all about being really subtle. And that's the magic, is that it's, it seems like I'm doing nothing, but I am. Right. <laughs> so you get both extremes. You get uh, you can t you know it's good. You know I'm doing something important to you because I'm a healthcare professional and I would never cause you this much pain for no reason. So here's a here's a lot of sensation for you, and uh, and then the the opposite extreme of um, I'm a, I'm a tired old therapist too exhausted to do anything intense. So I'm going to do subtle therapy instead. Well. As the creator of painscience.com, you're talking, we've talked, we've kind of touched on a little bit trigger point release, myofascial release, um, 
people seem to feel better afterwards. You know, you, you yeah. talked about that, that satisfaction that people get. Um, perhaps they, they were in pain, they lay down, they have these techniques done, they stand up, they feel significantly better. How long yeah. that lasts, you know, you said maybe short-lived, but one of, a lot of listeners are probably asking, like, why is it beneficial? If you're saying that it's pseudoscience and you're saying it's all theoretical, then why do I feel better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, this is the question I was the most looking forward to answering. It's, uh, <laughs> it's challenging. And I think that I've got an, an unusual angle on it. M- my role in on, on this topic, especially with trigger point therapy, is that I am I, I'm a very advanced fence sitter. <laughs> I am stuck between the skeptical position on trigger points and the credulous position on trigger points to a degree that often surprises some of my most skeptical fans. Um, so the, the first answer to the question, you know, wh- why do people feel better? Why are they satisfied? Is because it's possible that trigger point therapy works. <laughs> it's, it might actually be doing something. Um, just because we don't know what trigger points are uh, doesn't mean that poking them doesn't occasionally help. And I have had a number of profound experiences that despite the fact that I don't entirely trust my own perceptions and judgment are pretty hard to explain unless I decide that, yeah, maybe trigger point therapy actually does something to muscles or to my nervous system or whatever. Um, the, the thing about trigger point therapy that I find so fascinating is that more than any other therapy I can think of, it exists in a weird limbo between legitimate, um, legitimately interesting, uh, therapy that's based on science and quackery at the other extreme. It, It is nowhere, I really want to make this clear. Trigger point therapy is full of sketchy ideas, but is nowhere near as bad as a whole bunch of other popular and prevalent (laughs) quackeries. It's nowhere near as bad. And the, you know, the the people who uh, cooked up trigger point therapy in the first place were doctors who had some pretty decent scientific thinking and attitudes were well aware that it was all hypothetical, frequently acknowledged that, constantly called for more research. Uh, They knew that they were speculating in a way that you do not see with a lot of the really rank pseudoscience. Uh, So my position is that the controversy about trigger point therapy is a legitimate ongoing controversy. Some skeptics believe that the topic should be closed. I think that that is premature based, if nothing else, on the fact that the phenomenon, the clinical phenomenon of sore spots uh, is real. People have that experience all the time. It's ubiquitous. It's clinically relevant. These sore spots are routinely associated with the injuries that we get, with the problems that we have. Um, It should remain an open discussion and an ongoing discussion for that reason, if no other. Um, But I also just think that it's simply not a finished topic. The science is half-baked, which is good news and bad news. It's tragic and ridiculous that it's only half-baked after this many years. But that is the unfortunate reality of musculoskeletal medicine today. It is surprisingly primitive. All kinds of things that are considered mainstream have not actually been studied all that well. Um, It isn't really surprising that it hasn't been studied enough. It isn't surprising that it's half-baked. And it is half-baked. It is, there is some legitimately interesting science there. So this is how I sit on the fence in a way that drives people on either side of the fence nuts. Everybody wants me to come to their side of the fence. And they're always pulling on me from both sides for years now. And I just refuse. I'm staying up here. 
I'm staying on the fence on this one <laughs> until I see a clear and compelling reason to get off the fence. So that's my very long answer. The first part, <laughs> my very long answer to the question, what's going on? Why are people satisfied? Well, maybe something happens. Maybe there is an actual active ingredient. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on in these therapeutic interactions that can account for a lot of relief and a lot of satisfaction. And I suspect that that's mainly what you were asking about, yeah? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> the non-specific <laughs> effects. Because when you're talking about the this, when you're discussing it, part of me thinks of, okay, there's obviously going to be some placebo effect, if not all placebo, because of the the interaction with the therapist, the fact of being in pain and like, oh, this, this hurts, but this is going to get me better. Um, the beliefs that they have around it. Um, you're never going to really know until you have a double blinded, like, you know, control or, you know, you have one that has trigger points done, one that has this complete control or blinded control, which you can't have in physical therapy. You can't have a, a group that thinks they're getting trigger point, but actually doesn't get trigger point. It's very hard to, to conduct that sort of study, which is probably why it's so hard to why you're sitting on the fence because it's so hard to come up with an actual answer because people get better, but we're not sure of the mechanisms behind it. And as a, when I was studying physio back when we graduated, we learned about um, electro modalities, which were like therapeutic ultrasounds and those sort of um, devices that you plug into a wall, you know, you, you strap your electrodes onto the, the muscle and, it sends some sort of frequencies to help healing. That's very easy to conduct a study and have like a placebo on yeah. a, um, you yeah. know, a blinded study. And they have or, since uh, found that it's not effective. Laser therapy. I love laser therapy for that because there's nothing easier to create a sham for. <laughs> and that's been yeah. done, you know, tests where there's, you know, what the, the control group you know, gets uh, a laser therapy device that just literally doesn't do anything. It's literally just a red light. And the patient has absolutely no way of knowing whether that's a laser or just a red LED. And uh, yeah. that's kind of the, the ultimate example of that. And as a result of that, we no longer use those because we, you know, emerging evidence has shown it's not effective, so we don't use it anymore. But right. it's very hard when, when it comes to manual therapy treatments to know, okay, how much is placebo, how much is not because of the pure nature mm -hmm. that you can't separate the two. And when I was, you know, when I treat people, have massage techniques, they feel a lot better. You know, sometimes it conf it confirms the biases of the, the therapist as well. And then they start to become more confident with their techniques and their um, the effects and their, their guarantees or promises start to become a little bit more solidified and they develop mm -hmm. more prestige and they get better recommendations, which then increases that placebo effect. They start to, you know, develop a bit more of an aura about what they can deliver and that all just contributes to that placebo effect. Um, are we are we kind of on on agreement with that? Like any sort of pushback or any sort of agreement with it being? Uh, well, I don't know about pushback, but we can get we can get more granular. I mean, when you you know when you ask what's going on, why are people feeling better if it's not you know if these things don't actually work, if so many of them don't, then why are patients happy and uh, placebo is kind of the the elephant in the room right like you you assume you ask me that question you pretty much assume the answer is going to come back well there's a bunch of placebo but let's get a little more specific and uh, the the problem with placebo is that it's um it's one tiny little word that refers to a whole bunch of stuff and some of that stuff is kind of important and interesting and some of it is not so it pays to get a little more specific so for instance uh, therapeutic alliance is a very specific phenomenon that occurs and is particularly potent and prominent in relationships with massage therapists chiropractors physiotherapists the manual therapists and alternative healthcare professionals in general because they spend more time with you and the, the, what a therapeutic alliance is, is basically the more trust um, 
collaboration, sympathy, empathy, intimacy there is in a relationship with a healthcare professional, the happier the patient is. And that can translate into real, like genuine optimism, uh, feeling like you've got, uh, feeling like a healthcare provider is on your team. That's a big deal. Like that makes a difference to people. It's even if we don't make any reference to the physiology of what's wrong with them, you know, say you've got runner's knee, uh, maybe anterior knee pain, patellofemoral pain, perhaps without any reference to what this, what, what does therapeutic alliance do to patellofemoral pain? Eh. Even if it's nothing, um, it's it's still huge. It's still a big deal for someone who's been grinding through two years of losing their hobby um, to meet with a provider and feel like they get it and to and to have that connection and feel like, okay, this one is a serious ally. That's a big deal psychologically. Um, and think about how powerful touch is for enhancing therapeutic alliance. Sometimes I've thought that really all massage therapy is, is just, uh, it's the therapeutic alliance profession on steroids because the touch is an incredibly potent way to enhance the collaboration and the sense of connection and the trust. Um, but it gets better because touch, and now we see where things get weird with placebo, um, one thing that placebo is, is expectation effect. It's a psychological effect of thinking that you're going to get a benefit from something. And we know that all kinds of things increase expectations. Um, with weird examples, famous examples in the world of placebo research, like, you know, the fact that different colors of pills make a difference. You take a red pill, it's more potent, delivers more placebo. Imagine how much touch enhances expectation. If you can rub someone and get your thumb on a spot that feels to them like it's profound, like that's a big deal, imagine what that does to the expectation of what that therapy is going to do. It's incredibly potent. That goes beyond what any pill can do, uh, what a sugar pill can do. There's... Um, I call it a sensation-enhanced placebo. And I have a hunch that sensation-enhanced placebos are the product for most manual therapy. That when you get right down to it, it's all about delivering a sensation that helps to tell the story of what is being done for the patient. And it's really good at increasing expectations. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. And then increasing expectations increases their satisfaction with Jen, like <clears throat> increases the likelihood of a positive effect. Yep. Hugely. And, <clears throat> and we have yeah. no idea how much, but it's gotta be a lot. Um, mm. And there's more <clears throat> for sure. There's counter stimulation, for instance, um, which I also suspect it's just sort of a basic active ingredient in a lot of therapy. Counterstimulation is the idea that basically you can only feel so much at once. And there's a bunch of hard science in here and we could get really dorky about it. But the basic idea is that sensations, just like they can enhance a placebo, they can also compete with pain, essentially drowning it out, at least temporarily. And there's probably ways to optimize therapy for that effect. And that optimization has probably occurred as a natural part of the evolution of the manual therapies over the years, basically therapists figuring out what gives the best counter stimulation. And we don't know how much patient relief and satisfaction is accounted for by this, but probably a fair chunk. It's probably a pretty good slice of the, of the pie chart. Uh, and and I would guess, again, that just like there's lots of therapy that it seems to be all about enhancing expectation effects with sensation, there's we're also optimizing 
for counter stimulation without even realizing it. Hmm. <clears throat> Can I ask, cause I have written down the question of like, when would these sort of treatments, these hands-on manual therapies <clears throat> be beneficial or like, what's your recommendation of if someone or when someone should get these therapies, I have kind of my take and I wanted you to have just like impart your wisdom or your opinion on my particular philosophy, because you, you talked about the Venn diagram, like the, the satisfaction of someone, what their expectations are. And, you know, they may get a placebo effect or some sort of benefits and it's usually short lived in most cases. Um, you've got that one side, but then what overlaps is them actually getting better long-term benefits, um, you know, reducing the likelihood of um, it returning, like that sort of thing, the crossover between the two. If someone comes in and they're expecting to have massage and expecting to have some sort of release, um, what I would usually do is start with that and lead into that and sort of, you know, offer them what they would like. So trigger point release, massage, um, and as... If they feel better, great, but come back and what we do is slowly over time tend to go towards that other circle, that other getting better. So maybe after two mm -hmm. or three sessions, it's kind of 50-50. You're starting to get them to educate about the injury, start doing some rehabilitation work, start to strengthen the area, start to modify their their loading outside of their, um, their daily life, starting to do what's what research has shown is good long-term benefits and sort of just slowly heading towards that direction and, you know, getting the best of both worlds. They're better initially for the short term while they're having these manual therapies done, they're satisfied, but then just slowly heading them in the right direction towards actually getting better. Would you agree with that? Um, because a lot of runners here are like, okay, you, you're telling us all this stuff, all this pseudoscience, what do we actually do? Um, what should we do about it when we're in pain? Do you have any opinions on that? Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, if you, number one job is to build therapeutic alliance and you can't do a very good job of that. If your first reaction, you know, to what your patient wants is, well, that's bullshit. <laughs> it's not going to go very well. Um, if someone comes in and says, I, you know, I've, I, I've, I've done a lot, I've seen a lot of therapists and I, I really kind of think, Maybe my issue is trigger points. I get this really nasty sore spot, and I kind of I got a strong craving for someone to work on that. Maybe with needles, maybe you know, with thumbs at least, and maybe something sharper. Can you do that for me? You can't respond to that by saying well, that's garbage. I'm not doing that. <laughs> They're just gonna walk out. And um, it's completely legitimate as experimental therapy with informed consent, in my opinion. And I don't think everything is. Um, for instance, I don't think that we should ever deliver homeopathy as a legitimately experimental therapy. Some things are just too far out in left field. But as an official fence sitter on the topic of trigger point therapy, um, I'm pretty comfortable with the idea of saying to the patient, yeah, okay, let's do that. We don't really know exactly how that works or if it does. But it does seem to help people sometimes, so let's give it a try. And I have no problem yeah. with that at all. And then, of course, yeah, you can, as time goes on, you can segue into, you know, the trigger point therapy can be the gateway drug <laughs> to other <laughs> approaches to the problem. Uh, build therapeutic alliance and some satisfaction in the short term by, you know, giving the patient exactly what they want uh, within reason, right? It, there are there are limits and, you know, a good example of that would be uh, if someone had come to me in 2009 and said, you know, I hear you're really great with the trigger point therapy and I really want brutal, brutal trigger point therapy. I would have said, nope. <laughs> and here's why. Um, I was the gentle therapist and I treated a lot of refugees from extremely, from you could almost say abused patients and uh, from refugees from abusive therapy. So that was not my cup of tea. And I think that there are, you know, there are real reasons to refuse to do excessively intense trigger point therapy because there's too great a risk of, of injury, of making things worse. Um, mm. So I do draw lines, but in general, I'm willing to, yeah, I'm absolutely willing to endorse uh, 
an experimental therapy because it's all we've got really you know the mm. the there's not it's not like there's really hard evidence-based options to graduate to almost everything done for injured athletes is experimental there's very little that isn't so and i suppose taking control back to the listeners back to the runners who might be injured um all this topic around you know maybe it's pseudoscience maybe it's all theoretical you know, you should probably still do it if you find benefit from it, especially if you've had an injury in the past mm. and manual therapy has been effective for you. Don't listen to this episode and think you shouldn't do it. It's still very valid for you to get those therapies done because it reduces your symptoms. But where I have my problem is just purely relying on the manual therapy that might just be short-term and you're just like constantly going back to that therapy and seeing short-term effects um, that's where you need to really carry over into long-term. But mm-hmm. what I get really annoyed about is the narratives that get attached to some trigger point therapies or other manual therapies when mm-hmm. people are told that they have one leg longer than the other, their glutes aren't firing. Um, I heard someone, one of my clients went and saw a manual therapist and she was really upset because they just gave her a long list of imperfections and why she's broken essentially and she was just horrified and really struggled to come to terms with am i getting better like what am i how can i get better if i have all of these um you know ailments and people can really associate those they can find trigger points and say oh that's because your glutes aren't firing oh that's because your hips are twisted oh that's because you have one shoulder higher one leg longer your face is crooked all these sorts of things um, and the narrative that they attach to it is really detrimental and really, um, it, it's really detrimental to their recovery. Um, I'm guessing you've seen a lot of these particular narratives and, um, sure, what's yeah. associated with them. Um, yeah. would you have any particular thoughts on that discussion? Well, the, I think, I, I think humility is the, is the antidote to all of this. You want to, as a patient, you want to be aware of any therapist who is overly confident about any theory of why you've got a stubborn problem. Um, there's, uh, it, it's, it's hard to overstate how much nonsense is in this field. Uh, and that's the result of, of decades of, of independent and freelance therapists trying to sell their services and create you know modality empires and brands and it's just a ton of marketing and and a ton of you know there's so much scientific uncertainty that it's very easy for um, people to fill the void with their own ideas and their own answers so as a patient you just want to be extremely you want to reserve judgment a lot and don't believe um, every story you hear about what is supposedly wrong with you. Um, as a practitioner, you want to do an awful lot of, uh, of framing your narrative. It, probably try to tell less stories in the first place. <laughs> and when you do tell them, when you do speculate about what's wrong, do it with greater caution. More, you know, more statements like, Here's one possibility. There's probably several others I haven't thought of. Because <laughs> that's almost always the case. There's, you know, particularly yeah. in, the, in the realm of messy, you know, biochemistry and systemic factors. There's all kinds of stuff that routinely does not get thought about, but absolutely could be relevant. Mm. And runners can kind of shift their focus and think that like therapists like they're running a business like it is a business and sometimes some therapists have realized that fear or you know creating worry also creates reliance like on that therapist creates a lot of buy-in and then creates unfortunately sometimes this really disempowering treatment approach where you're putting all the control into the therapist they're in charge of like releasing realigning and doing all that sort of stuff which it's really unfortunate. Um, you know, you want to have control of your rehab to a certain point and you want to have, um, you know, you want to be empowered. You want to say, you can do these at home. You can do these particular exercises. You can progress on your own and you can start to forge your own path towards recovery. You've got control of the 
the wheel in this particular instance. I'm just in the back seat mm-hmm. showing you the map of what to do, and but you particularly have that control. Um, yeah. I think is you know where a lot of people need to find themselves. Yeah, and if, if nothing else, it's just a good antidote to uh, to being fixed. Be suspicious if you feel like you're being repaired. If that's if that's the the vibe that you're you've got glitches that need to be repaired by a therapist be afraid <laughs> that's you never want <laughs> that so um whether or not you can fix yourself with self-care whether or not you know a therapist can tell you what to do at home that is going to make all the differences it, it maybe maybe not but at least it's not putting your fate in the hands of a therapist who believes that they know that you've got glitch x and that they can beat it out with a hard-edged tool or a sharp needle or whatever it might be Hmm. um apologies for you know usually with interviews i just ask questions and get answers but i decided just (laughs) on the back end just to throw my opinions out there you can tell that i'm quite uh i've got a bit of a you know what do you call it a pet peeve with a lot of these particular Mm -hmm. um approaches just because i've seen so many people that have just been all the work they've done yeah. has been undone by therapists talking yeah. about these sort of things. So uh, apologies for that. But as we finish, um, is there anything in particular, <laughs> any final takeaways or anything that we haven't talked about that you think the runners might want to um, have known that we haven't necessarily discussed? Um, yeah. Maybe, why don't we just talk a little bit about what, if any relevance, trigger point therapy might have to common running injuries and sure so we've we've established that it's you know experimental medicine at best we've established that it's half-baked okay fine but maybe we've also established maybe according to this guy there could <laughs> possibly be something interesting going on uh, what you want to look for uh, clinically the description of a trigger point is a spot that is sensitive to pressure that wouldn't normally be so for instance if you Uh, you know, press on one side and that spot feels fine, but you press on that spot on the other side and it's super sensitive. That's what I mean about it wouldn't normally be. Obviously your eye, normally quite sensitive. So, you know, it's not abnormal (laughs) if your eye is sore when you poke it, but it might be abnormal if a spot in your deltoid or in your quads is unusually sensitive to pressure. Uh, So the sensitivity to pressure is a major characteristic clinically, And another characteristic is that that tends to be associated with aching and and sometimes throbbing. And it typically, not exclusively, but typically feels subjectively to to you like it's muscle. Um, Also, usually not an obvious um, traumatic origin. So if you pull a muscle, if you strain or tear a muscle that usually comes with what we call an oh shit moment in the business. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of pain very suddenly and trigger points don't usually work like that. This seemed as possible. There's a few that fire up to life surprisingly quickly, but usually it's not sudden like a trauma. So if you've got what feels like a sore aching sensitive spot in a muscle that isn't normally sore, And if it's near an injury, it might be worth rubbing it yourself if you can. Um, And I really want to be clear about this. One of the worst things in trigger point therapy, in the world of trigger point therapy, is the conceit that we know what to do about this. That we know exactly how to press, poke, rub, scrape, burn, heat, chill. That we know what, we don't know what to do. We don't know what makes these spots better there is no magic formula so the way to do it whether you're doing it on your own or whether you're doing it with the help of a therapist is to start slow don't beat the hell out of it and um, experiment feel free to experiment and aim for what feels good because ideally not always but often and ideally Uh, A little rubbing, a little pressure on one of these sore spots has a weird, good pain, satisfying quality and 
it can be surprisingly profound. I've seen people burst into tears with relief. I've had that experience where I was, I was absolutely nearly driven mad by a trigger point in my neck one year. And after months of frustration, um, I found the sweet spot, at, or rather my wife did, and <laughs> rubbed just the right spot in just the right way. And I cried. I cried. It was so relieving. And that was the end of that problem after months of pain. So there's one of my anecdotes. Months of agony and frustration was essentially eliminated completely in about 10 minutes where I had an incredible experience of that weird, good pain. So that's what you can look for. And sometimes some running injuries, that's going to be a difference maker. I think it's a good way to finish there because it's a, a good way to get that other side of the fence that you're sitting on. Um, yeah. <laughs> and a good yeah. way to get a nice balanced sort of view. And I think if we focus on, if we finish on the positives, I think that's a, a pretty good way to finish up an interview. It, so Exactly where I was headed. Yep. Let's, <laughs> let's give them, let's give them something good. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully people have yeah. um, paid attention long enough to, to get to the end of this interview. Um, <laughs> Painscience.com. Everyone go check it out. There's plenty on like, obviously pain, different conditions, different manual therapies and very, very, if not all science, evidence-based focus so many references and articles in there so go check it out and paul thanks again once again for coming on and sharing your wisdom thanks very much brody it was fun and that concludes another run smarter lesson i hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a run smarter scholar because when i think of runners like you who are listening i think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge who don't just learn but implement these lessons who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based, long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path. <laughs>